Matthew chapter 1. This is God's word to you because he is your father. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, uh, the father of, uh, of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and uh, his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel uh, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of uh, Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray together. Our Lord, your word is always an invitation to us. And more than an invitation, a call to us. Uh, to believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that your word would compel us and fill us uh, with wonder and delight, and it would draw us to Jesus, that we would trust in him, that it would form us, that it would shape us, make us into the people that you have called us to be, and make disciples. So we ask uh, for your spirit to come. Um, I pray uh, for those who are here that... uh, have not put their faith in Jesus and that you would use an obscure list of names like this um, to call them to who uh, Jesus is and to the Savior. I pray that you would give them ears to hear, that you would give sight to the blind and uh, open the ears of the deaf and that you would raise the dead. And uh, for those who are here who have walked with you uh, for many years, I pray that you would uh, renew our faith and um, that you would uh, teach us again the grace of the gospel. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So um, we are beginning uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And this passage that, uh, that we just read, I think, is probably a passage that a lot of people have read at some point, uh, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Uh, because many people at some point in their life say, you know, I should... I've, I have some opinions about the Bible. I should maybe actually read it for myself uh, to see if my opinions about the Bible are true. So I'm just going to read through the New Testament. And so they pick it up, and where do they start? They start in Matthew. And the first thing they read <laughs> is a list of names. <laughs> and I, actually, that was, that was true for me. I, I, 
I had a Gideon, one of those little green Gideon Bibles, and I said, I'm going to read this thing. And I, I remember reading this passage, and it was kind of a confirmation. I suspected when I'd seen the old Bible in my house that someone owned a long time ago, I, I knew that that book has a bunch of weird things in it that don't make any sense. And when I read the list of names, I said, that's what I thought was going to be there. A bunch of strange names that don't have anything to do with me. But uh, the fact is that um, for Matthew's original uh, audience, the people that he was actually writing to, they would have had a very different experience when, if they just heard me read that list of names. Because Matthew was writing to first century Jews who had either just become Christians or were thinking about becoming Christians. And uh, when they would have read that list, many of those names would have just exploded in their minds with stories um, that they had heard, that they had grown up listening to. All of those names were loaded with stories and meaning. And, uh, and so when they heard that list of names, it would have been charged with meaning to them. It would have evoked a story in their hearts. It would have evoked their imaginations. It would have evoked hope. Because basically, um, what that list that I just read is, is basically a summary of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is 39 books, and in a very succinct way, uh, Matthew has basically just summarized the whole Old Testament and brought, you know, kind of caught us up to speed, and then he's like, now I'm going to start Matthew, I'm going to start the New Testament, but i got to get you caught up to speed on the Old Testament, so I'm going to basically summarize it for you. And um, the reason that the story of the Old Testament comes as a genealogy, a list of names, is because in the very beginning of the Old Testament, it starts the story of our first parents, and they're in a garden, and a, a serpent or a dragon comes and uh, uh, deceives uh, Eve, and Adam and Eve, they fall, and they're uh, about to be thrown out of God's presence. And before they're thrown out of God's presence, they hear this promise that God is going to make everything right in the world. He's going to fight the evil that is in the world. And the way that he's going to do it is it's going to come through the seed of the woman. She is going to have a son. And he will be the one who's going to rescue the world from its darkness and from evil and, and every broken thing that's in the world. And so the rest of the story is about this line, this line of the seed and how God has preserved this line, this descendant uh, who uh, is eventually going to come and is going to be the hero of the world. And so the best way to summarize that story of the Old Testament is through a genealogy and how God has preserved that line. And now the time has come for that uh, the line to, to come alive, to, to the, the great moment to happen. And I'll tell you, um, the reason why stories, the, the fact that the Bible is a story is so important to us is because we understand our lives in terms of a story. Actually, uh, you may not know, I don't know if you know this, that uh, many researchers in human memory say that the way that we remember things, we don't remember our past in terms of, you know, a snapshot, like a picture or even like a video camera, like our past was videoed and now we're just replaying the video in our mind. That's not how we remember things. What our brains do is they take memories and they interpret them and they put them into a narrative structure. It is somewhere in our DNA and in our gray matter that our lives are a story. And that um, we know deep down inside that the universe that we are living in is not just a big mass of atoms that happen to be colliding a certain way. And that you're not just a bag of juices and gases that's walking around bony and stuff like that. That's not what you are. You are a character in a story. And actually your DNA and your brain structure actually knows that as well. And so what Matthew is doing, what he's inviting us into while he's recounting this story of God 
in the Old Testament and bringing us to the dramatic moment is he's saying this is the story you are living in. And the, the only way that we can make sense of our lives is when we understand uh, the story that God is doing in the world and our place in it. What place do we have in God's great story? And so what I want to do this morning is use this uh, list of names, strange names that many of you probably <laughs> didn't recognize hardly any of those names, and, um, and look at that list of names and, and sh have it show us three things about the story that we're living in. These three things are this. First of all, that it's a story that's true. We are living in a true, the story that Matthew's telling us is a true story. It actually happened in history. Second, it's a story that's looking for an ending. The story is looking for an ending. And third, it's a story about a new world. It is a story about a, a new world. And my hope is that we look at Matthew's beginning uh, through Advent and into Christmas of this story that, um, that these words would do for us what every story is good story is meant to do is to fill us with delight and fill us with wonder at who God is and what he's doing. So three things about the story. And the first is this, that it's a true story. Uh, the story is true. And, uh, you know, one of the first things that Matthew's communicating by uh, starting his gospel, his, he's going to give an account of the life of Jesus, uh, starting it with a genealogy, is what he's trying to say to us is that the things that I'm about to tell you, they, didn't, they weren't some legend that happened, you know, who knows when, sometime in the distant past, once upon a time. He's saying this, these are things that happened uh, to a real family in a real place, in a time we know when, in a date we know when, in a land we know when, in towns that we know where. And so I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the, the, the ancestry of this actual person that was born. And I, I know for me, when I grew up, growing up, I, I didn't grow up going to church, but my impression of Jesus was that he was just kind of another figure in the, in the kind of history of legends that the world had. Um, that, you know, there was... Uh, people had passed down stories, and there were these groups of people, and, and it was kind of like telephone, you know, and they'd tell their children the story, and then their children would tell it, and they'd change it a little bit, and by the time you get the story, you know, who knows whether this is, has any connection to reality whatsoever, or is, this a, or is this a true story? That's not the case with the Bible. The Gospels that we have are, um, are eyewitness accounts of things that happen in real history. Matthew, who wrote this gospel lived with Jesus. And you know that, you know, if you've had a roommate, you're going to find out what that person is really like if you live with them. You know, Matthew lived with Jesus for three years. He's going to see all, if there were flaws in Jesus, if, you know, it's like, you know, you're going to find out this guy, he leaves dishes all over the place. He can't be God, you know. Uh, this, he's a slob, you know. They, they didn't find that. They actually lived with him to find out who, who he really is, and they were compelled even more. This man is God. Matthew was a disciple. John, who wrote a gospel, the, the gospel, was a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Mark, who wrote, wrote the gospel of Mark, he, he was recounting Peter's account of, uh, of Jesus' life. Peter was Jesus' best friend. And Luke, Luke went around, he's like an investigative reporter, and he went around to all these people who had been eyewitnesses to the things that had happened to Jesus, and he wrote them down. These are not legends that had been passed down after generation, after generation, after generation. This is first generation early, immediate accounts of who Jesus is. And what Matthew says is that Jesus, he was born by the power of God, by the Holy Spirit, in a virgin. And then he died on the cross and was risen from the dead. 
And uh, I'll tell you, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, when uh, he uh, converted, uh, C.S. Lewis converted when he was uh, 31. And uh, at 29, he first uh, decided uh, that he, he actually believed in God. He wasn't quite a Christian yet and didn't quite believe in Jesus, but he believed in God. And uh, he tells a story in his autobiography called Surprised by Joy um, about a conversation that he'd had uh, the year before. And he says this, early in 1926, the hardest boiled of all atheists I ever knew sat in my room on the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was really surprisingly good. Rum thing, he went on. All that stuff of Fraser's uh, about the dying God, rum thing. It almost looks as if it had really happened once. All these legends about dying gods that had been passed down that were just who knows when, made up by some culture somewhere, it looked like it actually happened in history once, is what he said. To understand the shattering impact of it, you would need to know the man who has certainly never since shown any interest in Christianity. If he, the cynic of cynics, the toughest of the toughs, were not... As I still would have put it safe, where could I turn? Was there then no escape? Lewis was an atheist. And he was being confronted with the evidence that what happened to Jesus was not some vague story that happened in history, some myth it was, uh, that happened in who knows when. It was something that actually happened in history, in an actual place. Um, and it, it was actually true. And uh, actually for Lewis, a, a couple years later, uh, he, he stayed up all night with two of his closest friends, uh, Hugo Dyson and, and J.R.R. Tolkien. And there was this walk in Oxford that they would go on, the Addison's Walk. And uh, they, they spent all night going on this walk and talking. And the thing, this was the decisive conversation that, that converted Lewis, that he became a Christian, was that uh, Dyson and Tolkien said, look at your love of stories. Look at your love of myths and of legends that have happened. You see how they stir in you delight and wonder and joy, and your heart is drawn to them when you hear those stories. Well, they say you should have that same experience when you come to the Gospels, except this is the difference. This is the one time it actually happened. This is the true myth, and that's what Lewis said was the, 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 the changing moment for him was he realized that in Jesus, myth and fact became one. The gospel is the true myth. It's the true time where God became man and dwelt among us and, uh, and conquered death and conquered sin. And uh, he is the centerpiece to the story uh, we are living in. And so um, I, I put a, a quote from you also from G.K. Chesterton on page three of your, of your bulletin. He says, he says the same thing. This is in his book, The Everlasting Man. It's kind of a history of, of humanity and the story of the world. And he says this, right in the middle of all these things, right in the middle of all this history, stands up an enormous exception. It is quite unlike anything else. It is a thing final like the trump of doom, though it is also a piece of good news or news that seems too good to be true. It is nothing less than the loud assertion that this mysterious maker of the world has visited his world in person. It declares that really, and even recently, or right in the middle of historic times, there did walk into the world this original invisible, invisible being about whom the thinkers make, theory, make theories and the mythologists hand down myths, the man who made the world. And what this says is the birth of Jesus is the dramatic 
moment in the story of, of the world that all our brains, our gray matter, our DNA tells us we're living in a story, this is the crucial centerpiece event that we're reading in the Gospels. But um, it's more than just a true story that actually happens. It's also compelling because it is a story that is looking for an ending. And specifically, what I mean by that is that uh, the story of the Old Testament is uh, that, that Matthew summarizes in these passage is a story that is looking for an ending. N.T. Wright is a theologian. That's how he described the Old Testament. And the way that we can see that is in two ways is first because it's a story for the lost and second because it's a story with a hero. Let me tell you what I mean. First, this is a story. The story about Jesus is a story for people who are lost. And uh, one of the things that's really fascinating about this genealogy is that um, any, you know, I, I mentioned that the first audience would have been Jews who, you know, many of us, we read a lot of those names in that list and we say, I, I don't really know who all those people are. Um, but the Jews, would, the Jews reading this would not have felt that way. T many of these names would have evoked, uh, uh, you know, surprise and, and they'd be impressed. This is kind of a Jesus resume, like, wow, these are your descendants. You know, uh, there's not just Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who would have been the descendants of any Jews, but his descendants of King David. And David's son Solomon, who was the greatest, you know, had the greatest, most expansive kingdom in the Old Testament. And then it goes through all the royal lineage of the Old Testament, of all the kings of Judah, all the sons of David who are kings. And all, Jesus has, you know, his line all with him. And any Jew would have said, wow, this is impressive. This guy must be someone important. And yet Matthew does something interesting. He doesn't want this to be a spotless genealogy. And he makes a point to bring out the blemishes in Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' family line. And uh, I'll show you a few. In particular, um, there are these uh, five women that are included in the genealogy, which uh, it's, not, it's not a blemish to have a woman in your genealogy in any means, but, but it's, it's, uh, it's abnormal. Uh, in a patriarchal society, you wouldn't put a, a woman in the genealogy, but these women are particularly interest, uh, interesting. And uh, look, at, look at the passage again, verse 3. It says, And Judah, the father of Perez and uh, Zerah, by Tamar. He throws in that, uh, that uh, Perez was uh, the son of Tamar. And if you know the story of Tamar, uh, Genesis 38, Tamar uh, was Judah's daughter-in-law. And she dressed up as a prostitute and went and, uh, and uh, tricked him into sleeping with her and got pregnant uh, with her uh, with her father-in-law and had two sons. And so a uh, kind of scandalous um, uh, episode in uh, Jesus' genealogy. Verse 5, it goes on. And Salmon, uh, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab was a, a Canaanite. She was an outsider. She was of a different religion, and she was a prostitute. Uh, it goes on. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Mo uh, Jews were, Israelites were um, forbidden to marry uh, with Moabites. And here's Ruth. And lastly, in verse, uh, verse 6, it says, And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon uh, by the wife of Uriah. And here, at the most important part of the whole genealogy, here's King David. Matthew says, and by the way, I just want to remind you that uh, David, um, Uriah was one of David's best friends. And uh, David committed adultery with Uriah's wife and got her pregnant. And in order to cover it up, he uh, murdered Uriah. This is, on, the first, on the one hand, you say, wow, this is impressive genealogy. And you read it a little closer and you say, this is not really impressive. This is a dirty, 
genealogy, scandalous genealogy. And uh, what Matthew is saying is that the story that Jesus is coming into is a story about people who are lost, people who are broken. And what Jesus does is even in his genealogy, he doesn't dismiss these people. He doesn't try to cover them up. He doesn't try to disassociate himself with uh, the people of this genealogy. He owns them. Here is men and women, uh, prostitutes, adulterers, rich, poor, um, murderers that are all in this line. And Jesus says, I want to own them. They are mine. And this is a foretaste of what the gospel is going to be, is what Jesus is going to do is he's going to be inviting the marginalized, people who are outsiders, people who are rejected, people who are sinners, uh, uh, people that no one wants, and he's going to say, come to me. I want, I, I'm not ashamed of you. And the people in this genealogy, he's not ashamed of. And the fact is, what that says to us is that the story we are living in is that the hero of this story is not ashamed of us. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, for me... I mentioned that the, the first time that I read this genealogy, I had a little Gideon um, Bible that I had found. And I, I've shared with many of you that uh, as a teenager, I, I was lost. Um, I, I dropped out of school. I was on drugs. I had run away from home. I was 15 years old. And so my parents had to have me uh, sent away to a, a behavioral modification program in Western Samoa. So I was spent a year and a half in a new age you know, rehab or something like that. And I found, I'd never read a word of the Bible. And I started with Matthew, and fortunately, even though I didn't understand a word of that genealogy, I kept reading <laughs> for some reason. And I found uh, that, that the man that I met in those pages, the hero, was someone that I was so compelled by. I was said, this is someone I could trust. This is someone who would not be ashamed of me. And what uh, Matthew is saying from the beginning is the person I'm introducing you to, this hero, is someone who is not ashamed of sinners but invites them to come and to be forgiven and to know him. He says, come to me. And the question, what the question is for us as we come to the Gospels, you know, what, what are we asking ourselves? Why is Matthew writing us? What's the big question we should be asking as we read this is, is the man we meet in here someone that I trust? Are you someone that I find trustworthy? And some of you, you know, maybe you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're here. You're thinking of who is Jesus? What is faith? What is Christianity? The heart of it is the question of, is the man that you meet here someone that you find trustworthy? Would you give your life? Does he know you? And would you trust, uh, would you trust him? This is a man who says that he's God and he's come to rescue you. Will you trust him? And that's uh, the second thing about this, uh, um, about this passage is that um, it's not just a story for uh, it's looking for an ending, not just because it's for the lost, but also because it's a story with a hero. And uh, what, you know, it, uh, one of the things that's important to understand about the Old Testament, you know, um, if you haven't read through the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the story of this nation, Israel, that God chose. And it's about his dealings with them. But if you read through the Old Testament, you find out that the story is actually not so much about this whole people, this nation, but it's about the leader of the people. So there's Abraham, and there's Isaac, and there's Jacob, and there's Moses, and there's Joshua, and then there's the judges, and there's Samuel, and there's King David, and there's Solomon. All of these people were the people that God had put in charge of the people. And the whole story is about, depending on, you know, if the leader is faithful, loves God, is righteous, then the people tend to love God and are righteous, and they follow him. And, and uh, the people are kind of match what the leader is like. He is the representative. 
And so what you see in this genealogy, if you, uh, if you, you know, look at starting in verse 6 again, where it says, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of uh, Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, etc. Those names, if you've read through the Old Testament, that's First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, and all the prophets are about all those people. And the, the effect that they had as the leader of God's people, um, that they shared their life with the people, they were the representative. And what the whole Old Testament is looking for is that all these kings were failures. They couldn't lead the people. And so at the end of the Old Testament, it's looking for an ending. It's looking for who's going to be the true king. And Matthew is saying the true king has now come in Jesus. And what happens is when we put our faith in Jesus, what happens is we become one of his people. He becomes our representative. And so when he's our representative, we share with him everything that's ours, and he shares with us everything that's his. So we share with him our humanity. He becomes man. We share with him our sin and our guilt and our shame, and he takes all of those on the cross. He takes the things that are ours, and then we take the things that are his. He's God's beloved son who God cherishes and delights in. Um, he is the heir of all things. He has eternal life. He has the Holy Spirit. He gives us all the things that are his. And so there's this great substitution. There's this exchange that what's, his, what's true for him becomes true for us, and what's true for us becomes true for him. And that's the heart of what the gospel is, is that when we put our faith in Jesus, we begin to share in his life. And uh, that's, that's what we're being invited into in this passage. That's what we're called to, is to share in the life of Jesus. Have you shared in the life of Jesus? By faith, by trusting him. The last thing I want to say about this passage is not just uh, that it's a story looking for an ending, but what is the ending? Where is uh, it going? The last thing about the story that, uh, that Matthew is telling or telling a, a, the crucial part of is that it is the story of a new world. It is a story of a new world. And I, I don't know how that hits you when I say that. But for me, any story where it says uh, there is, it's possible that there's another world besides this one stirs in me a deep longing. There may be another world, maybe a world like this, maybe a world that has all the good things of this world but is, is free of all the bad things. And uh, that's one of the things that Matthew is tapping into in these opening page, uh, verses. Let me show you. Look at verse 1 again. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, what that actually, in Greek, what that actually says is this is the, the Genesis, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. It's the same word for Genesis, which is a book in, the, in the, uh, the beginning of the Bible when God created the world. It's the beginning. And what Matthew is saying is, you know, remember when God created the world? Now that Jesus is coming, he's creating a new world, a new creation. And, um, and uh, a, a new world, is God is making a new world in Jesus Christ. But also in verse 17, look at verse 17 again. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David, the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation to, to Babylon to the Christ is 14 generations. So he's saying how many generations there are in this passage. And if you do a little math, you know, take out your TI-89, you're going to find out that 14 times 3 is also 7 times 6. 7 times 6 generations is how many there are. And so what that means is that there are seven, six groups of seven 
leading up to Jesus. Jesus is the beginning of the seventh seven. And if you go back to the creation of the world in Genesis 1, the creation of the world was in what? Seven days. And what happened on the seventh day? If you go back and you look at Genesis 1, it says in, after when God was making the world the first day, he made, you know, it said, let there be light. And it said it was evening and it was morning the first day. And after every day, it says it was evening and morning the second day, evening and morning the third day. But you get to the seventh day and it says that God rested. God enjoyed his creation. The, the creation was full. It was complete. He said things are very good. There's this wholeness. There's this shalom, this peace in the world. Oh, everything is supposed to be. And then the day doesn't end. The seventh day never ends in Genesis 1 because we were supposed to be living in a world that was filled with God's peace and God's goodness and everything was good. And what God is doing in Jesus is he's restoring that original intent for his creation. And Jesus is now the seventh day. He is the completion of the seventh day. He's bringing the, the new world of hope. And that's why he's bringing the day of rest. And that's why when you read in the Gospel of Matthew, that famous word, those famous words of our Lord Jesus that is only recorded in Matthew says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in the very next paragraph, he says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of rest. And what he's bringing, what all of us long for is we live in this broken world, and our lives are broken, and they're filled with turmoil and hurt and, and frustration. We long to just be able to live in God's creation with rest, with peace. And Jesus is saying, I want to give that to you. And so during Advent, as it's Advent right now, Advent is a time where we look forward to the coming of Jesus at Christmas. And uh, for us, you know, Jesus has already come at Christmas 2,000 years ago, but we're awaiting his coming again, where Jesus, uh, where the Bible says that Jesus will come and he will make all things new in this world. This world, the story we were living in, will come to a good ending, which will end in a world of peace, where God will come and dwell with us in this world and he will make all things new, he will wipe every tear away, and he will finally give us rest. What's amazing is what Paul says is that when we put our faith in Christ, even now, you can become new creation. You can be a little chunk of that new world plopped down into this old world. You can begin to taste that rest. And Jesus comes to call, come, calls us to come to him and to believe. And so, um, the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew is really, it's an invitation. An invitation to see that you are living in a story. An invitation to the lost, to those who are lost, to come and to meet the hero. And it's an invitation to find your rest in him. Will you trust him? Is this a man that you find trustworthy? Let's pray together. Our Lord...